Shall I pour now, <laughs> Mr. Lester? <laughs> yes. Now, yes, it's, please do. Now, I love coincidences, and it's a coincidence that Lenny Henry should be in the West End at the moment in August Wilson's Fences at the Duchess Theatre, because it was, what, 20-something years ago Ouch. that I saw this young man for the first time as uh, the character's son, opposite Yafet Cotters, I remember. Mm -hmm. And I, said, I remember saying to myself, you know, Adrian, five minutes out of Rada and star quality exuding <laughs> from every pore. And since over those years, we've seen Adrian here at Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, of course, as a contemporary Henry V, 10 years ago. And now he's back giving a remarkable performance. And I think the best production of Othello I've ever seen. And I've seen a few in my time. And I think, I think they have the wisdom to agree with me. But I should also mention more Sondheim Company at the Donmar Warehouse, the film of primary colours, of course, appearing opposite James Earl Jones in Captain Hopton Roof across the river there. And only last year, Red Velvet, in which uh, uh, Adrian memorably played Ira Aldrich, or Ira Aldrich, the 19th century American actor. And he had a very good... I mean, was it part of your plan when you proposed to your wife, Lolita... <laughs> because she was going to write you a big, fat, juicy star part one of these days. <laughs> was that yes. all part of the Lester long-term plan? Yes, and she's fulfilled her contract really well. <laughs> well, I was wondering if one morning around the breakfast table, she said, darling, I've written this play about Aldrich. Do you think David Harwood might be interested? <laughs> <laughs> At which point I moved into a little flat down the road. Um, we, <laughs> that, that part came about because... Um, a, a theatre buff, somebody who loved theatre, a guy called Edward Thompson who lived in Brighton, had um, unearthed um, some facts about Ira Aldridge playing in Brighton. And he did a little more research um, on this actor and then asked me, wrote to me and said, would you mind doing a reading uh, in Brighton and at the Garrick Theatre Club? And I said, oh, well, let me have a look at this person and who he is. And was um, really surprised that I knew nothing about this man at all, and wherever I went, you know, bookshops and so on, I could find nothing um, out about him. And I told Lolita, and she began searching. The internet didn't have much uh, for him uh, at the time. It was very, in its infancy, the internet wasn't, you know, as, as prolific as it is now. So she'd order books from uh, America. And then I went to America, I did a job. She went to African-American bookshops. She got more information. And she started telling me all of these facts about uh, the Theatre Royal Covent Garden and Edmund Keane and Charles Keane and the tours and Russia and setting up the National Theatre of Serbia. And he played Shakespeare where they'd never heard Shakespeare before in Europe and toured where there were no train lines and took his company. And he played in English while they spoke in German or Russian or French. And um, she said, I think there's a play here. <laughs> and she just started beavering away. Uh, she wrote it years ago. It's been doing the rounds of so many theatres in London for the last six years. Um, most people said no thank you until we found a space at the tricycle and they said yes, we'll put it on. Yes, I'm afraid I have to confess I have, wasn't able to get in. I think it was I was discouraged by the fact that the returns queue for the, the tickets extended as far as Marble Arch all the way from the tricycle. <laughs> And I thought, I'll wait till it comes back because it's bound to be revived. Now, what can you tell us? Will there be more life for Red Velvet? Um, yes, it's going to New York um, in April uh, next year. And before that, it'll be back at the tricycle, though the dates were not absolutely certain when. 
but it, it, it will be coming back. Good. So let's all book our tickets well in advance this time, ladies and gentlemen, so we don't miss out. So apologies for not being as well informed as I ought to be. But I imagine there's a fair bit of Othello in Red Velvet anyway. Uh, yeah, there are, there, are <laughs> there are two scenes of Othello in Red Velvet. One is the, um, where Othello sees Desdemona after the trip to Cyprus. Uh, you see the actors in Red Velvet rehearsing that with full gesture and you know, speech patterns and everything. And then um, we play, in Red Velvet, we play the scene, the handkerchief scene, as if you were going to a, a, a theatre in 1833 and you were watching Othello then. So it's all, again, it's all, it's all gestures and big voice and, and so on. So when you came to work on this production of Othello, did you have to kind of unlearn everything that you'd <laughs> learned for Red Velvet? Um, you probably still see bits of it in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, yeah, in rehearsal, I knew, I knew the handkerchief scene uh, because we'd done that one. And as soon as I began it, I had to stop myself. Because you, you, it goes into your muscle memory, you learn things, and what you don't want to do in a modern production like this is go... <laughs> and Nick is cringing at the desk there, thinking, oh, it's too late to recast. Oh. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't work. Fills the house, but it doesn't. It doesn't so has it kind of opened up the play to you, this rather unusual, I'm not saying it's a preparation, but sort of uh, prelude with Red Velvet to this production. Have you, was anything you found useful? There, were, there, were, there was one thing um, I found incredibly useful, and, uh, and it's this, it's quite a complicated thing. Um, when you think of bad acting, we all do a terrible impression of what people would have done in, in you know, 19th century Britain. We all do that, and sort of big gestures and big voice. But doing Red Velvet, we had to do that and yet make it real, give it its full emotional weight so that it had the, the impact it needed for that production. And coming to this, I realized that a lot of modern um, acting um, we shorten our thought spaces, we occupy less space, and we tend to shrug through emotions, especially when they're played back to us on screen or, or you know, films, television, and so on. There's a, there's a naturalism that we sort of aim for, and that naturalism is our reality. <clears throat> but yet in Shakespeare, you have passages of, of poetry where emotions have to be 110% you know, for the character, and they have to fill a big house like this. And I found... Um, filling those passages easier because I'd done Red Velvet. I didn't believe that I had to shrug my way through or try and naturalize the, the, the sentences that Shakespeare had written in order to play them. Because in, in some part of naturalizing um, those sentences, you sort of neutralize them as well. You take the heat out of them in order to make them for yourself believable and play them on a very, um, on, a, on a sine wave, a very calm middle ground. Whereas I found it was easier, because of doing Red Velvet, to, to reach those peaks and those troughs. I found it was complicated. What struck me very interesting was how Shakespeare's language seemed to lose its archaisms and fit the setting so beautifully. I don't know if you were aware of this, that somehow... You know, in writing 400 years ago, he maybe it's because he knows how soldiers talk, maybe it's how, because he knows how men of action talked. 
to one another. But I was very struck by the ease with which his 400-year-old language adapted to this contemporary setting. Part of, I mean, much of that is down to Mick and Vicky and their setting. Um, Nick instinctively knew what to cut, knew what wouldn't fit. We haven't done the whole play. We've trimmed it all the way through, otherwise it'd be, you'd be here for another hour watching the show. Um, he knew what to trim, and in rehearsal, he was um, very, very detailed uh, when listening to, to, to uh, all of us speak the language. He picked up on phrases and stresses and would just say, maybe it's this, and would offer you that. And then at, at certain times, passages just played, <clears throat> played straight through. I mean, 400 years ago, soldiers getting together, getting drunk and having a fight. It's, <laughs> it's timeless. Mm. <laughs> um, but in this setting, when we have beer bottles and crates and fold away chairs, it's somehow, for our modern sensibilities, it's sudden, it, somehow it's, it's much more vibrant and real. Now, have you constructed much of a backstory for Othello before he, we see it, before he arrives in the world of this play? And what can you tell us about what decisions that you've made about his past? Um, it's, a, it's, it's a great part, but the playwright doesn't really help you if you're playing Othello. There are a lot of leaps necessary for your emotions and, and um, logic as well that aren't, um, aren't shown to the audience. And you have to have them, hold on to them, and play them on stage as if so much has happened off stage or in your previous life. For me, um, he says, Othello says, since these arms of mine had seven years pith, they have used their dearest action in the tented field. So since his arms had seven years strength, seven years old, he's been fighting. Um, so for me, he would have been a child and fighting. So then pictures of children with Kalishnikovs and so on came to mind. And then I looked at the circumstances in which those children were given those guns and what was done to them to make them fight. Not that all of those kids, once grown up and rehabilitated, and, and once they'd learned what had happened to them, would they then go on and kill their wives, but it was an interesting place to start. And I think that, that losing his parents and the violence that he's encountered and seen, he was taking people's lives before he really understood what life was. Um, and the only thing that has given him peace of mind, structure, purpose, and a sense of self is that uniform. And he has held that uniform like a shield that's taken him through his life and rank, ordering soldiers, saving lives, rescuing people, and so on and so forth. That's what he's been doing for this army. The only time he risks that, the person who climbs underneath that shield, is Desdemona. And I think uh, for that man, when talking to others at dinner tables and gatherings and wine and cheese evenings and so on with the senators and their friends, he's told his story so many times and people have gone, gosh, and how many did you kill? And what was it like? And, and how, how far did they chase you? And, and so on and so forth. Interested in the objective idea of this heroic man. And Desdemona is the only person who shed tears uh, for him and asked him, you must have been scared. Weren't you lonely? How did you cope? You must have been cold hiding there. Didn't you want your parents? Didn't you miss? And I think that sensibility broke his heart. And for me, I can see exactly why that kind of man fell in love with her and risked everything to run away with his friend's daughter. Um, it makes sense to me. 
Although the only the, the, the way you're introduced to that in the play is through Iago's eyes. So again, the playwright doesn't help you. He has this bigoted, jealous man introduce you to this to this love, and you're supposed to see through that and see that there is something there is something very, very fragile and very honest and very truthful there. And that was my starting point. Now, I read, uh, you did a joint <coughs> interview, you and Rory spoke to The Guardian, and I read that, and you talked about having been comrades in arms for quite a long period of time, because often you get the sense that they've only just met each other in some productions of Othello. But you, between you, you've decided that it's a long-term relationship that they've had. Yeah, yeah, we decided that because... Why does the fellow believe him? <laughs> why, why take his advice? So we decided that yes, um, uh, upon and he whose, eye, whose eyes had seen the proof um, on grounds, Christian and heathen at Rhodes at Cyprus, we got the sense that Othello and Iago have worked together a lot. Mm. Now tell me about the. Uh, now how, how, how can I? describe it exactly. Um, I mean, I think it's unusual, Othello, because there are two leading roles in a way. It's like a double act to some extent. So when you do that, that crucial sequence when he first starts to plant the poison in Othello's ears, how do you, do you sort of choreograph it very carefully or do you both leave it quite loose uh, between you so that you can kind of leave room for on the spur of the moment, inspirations, as it were. <laughs> um, much of the playing is left quite loose. Although in rehearsal, when we got to that scene, that act three, scene three, I was very aware that if, if we don't get that right, then we don't have the play. And so there are a few moments in that scene where and I raised my hand in rehearsal and asked for this. I said, I need to know when I look at Iago, when I look away, when I seem to be listening, when I'm not listening, when I'm looking out and letting the words sink in, when I question him with a look, when I don't, <clears throat> so that Rory could play off that when he goes too far, when he decides to rest and let a thought rest with Othello, when a questioning look leads him to go on, all of these things had to be worked out so that the reality, the point-to-point -point reality of just how he begins to turn Othello's mind was clear to us on stage and the audience. I mean, you, but did you plot his disintegration very carefully, uh, yeah. Adrian? I mean, that's what struck me. That so often, Othello's can look rather, you know, like the proverbial spare prick towards the end of the play. He's sort of peripheralized. He's almost marginalized and all the excitement is going on and Iago's uh, being captured and all the rest of it. But what was so striking about your interpretation was this careful annotating of different stages in this collapse of a, a man. Could you talk a bit more about that? Um, I... <clears throat> I think a perception of, of a person's character is something that happens external of them. And if you try in portraying a character, taking on a character, if you try to sort of make a conscious decision to play only this and only that and bring this down and bring this up in order to make a logical sense of a person, what you end up doing is you only play the middle ground of a human being because what you play is conscious. 
it's consciously applied. And so what I tried to do was to make sure that when Othello spoke of love for Desdemona, he truly loved her, and I would occupy that space and let that live, and not think about three lines later where he expresses disgust for her. I wouldn't try to dampen one in order to make the other live, or vice versa. And then in playing them and, and forcing myself to go from one extreme to the other again and again and again, what the audience builds up, their picture of character, should be much more than just a middle ground playing. Does that make sense? You play the extremes. If a friend of yours was um, asking you about another friend of yours romantically and they said, well, do you, is, is he an angry person? You would say, yes, he can get angry. But is he a calm person? Yes, he is quite calm. <laughs> But he, does he like food? Yeah, he likes food, but you know, he doesn't. But he doesn't like me. Well, he doesn't like me. It, 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 everything, everything has a yes and a plus and a minus. Everything does, and and so I didn't want to dampen um, Othello's uh, gamut of emotions in any way. Um, every scene is played to the hilt for what that scene is. At the end of the play, your perception of his character is an amalgam of all of those extremes, and I think they should be extremes. Um, and that's what I tried to do. How much do you feel that Shakespeare inherently sympathizes and empathizes with the outsider in this society, i.e. Othello? Because there are one or, one or two remarks um, in the mouths of other characters which would be construed today, certainly, as, as racist remarks. But is it a bit like his view of Shylock in that he uses the sort of prejudice about the, you know, amongst all the other characters about Othello because... He wants to make it truthful, but also because he feels inherently sympathetic towards a character like Othello, who is an outsider in this society. Um, in this play, um, Shakespeare gives Othello the most beautiful poetry um, concerning love um, that I've ever heard. He gives him an eloquence and a beauty of soul that um, serves to uh, work at odds with the perceived image of this man stealing this young woman and running off away without her father's knowledge. And as much as Iago is given, before you see Desdemona or Othello, Iago is given the lines of the black ram topping your white ewe, making the beast with two backs. You're, you're before your daughter makes um, grandsires of you and you know, animals and all this animal in imagery before you even see Othello. And then when you meet Othello, Shakespeare gives him this beautiful speech, all in iambic pentameter, and pushes and pulls your sensibilities and, and, and works on you, creates a dramatic and empathic tension within the audience. And, and he works on that throughout the play. And if, if we can get to the point where Othello can kill Desdemona, and as brutal as it is, there is some part of you that feels sympathy for him and especially for her. If you can still feel sympathy for him at that point, then I've done my job because I think that's what, that's what he intended. You know, how aware were Shakespeare's audience? Because there were black people in Elizabethan England. They weren't unknown. But how do you think, did the, did the audience see it in sort of racist terms, do you think? Or... Uh, did they, well, who knows, but do you get a sense from the play as to what the audience, how it would have been caught up in Othello's tragedy? Would they have forgotten 
if you like, their racist feelings because of this Shakespeare skill and whoever was you know, the actor playing Othello. I think there's, there's very little fuss made about Othello's colour in this play, really. None of the generals, none of his superiors make um, any fuss about the play. Brabantio does, but that's after Othello has done something wrong in Brabantio's eyes. He's taken his daughter. And then the vindictive, the colour vindictive comes out. For Emilia, he's an amazing officer until he does something wrong. And then the vindictive and the, the, the racial stuff comes out. For Iago, he, he is honest Iago. He is a trusted soldier and he's trusted for a reason. We can't think that Iago spends all his time doing this because, because over the years they've known each other, you know, something would have been found out. He, he is a trusted officer. And if you, if, what I, so, I love so much about what Rory's done is that if you play Iago as a moustache twirling villain, then everybody who trusts him, everyone who says, this is a really straight, you know, fine, upstanding bloke, you can really trust him, looks like an idiot. And Rory hasn't done that. He's done something much more chilling and, and deeply psychological with the character so that you can understand why people would say honest Iago because he looks and sounds like he's give, giving you know, straightforward great advice and underneath that he's, he's pulling at the audience and, and dissembling everybody. I think the audience racially would have had the same thing happen to them. I think they were obviously, because Shakespeare uses it for, for, for dramatic purposes, they were obviously aware of all of the negative associations of color and, and the, the, the prejudice that existed, the racism that existed, and he's this and he's, he's a, a heathen and, and, and so on. But the quality of a person's thought, what they say and what they do, seem to matter much more to that audience than um, we think it does. I get the sense this is the most demanding part you've ever played. <sighs> <laughs> Have some more tea. <laughs> yes. Has it got the vodka in it? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's a bit of a mountain every time I do it. Mm -hmm. And that's a cliche. It really is. But um, it's difficult. It's difficult. The first 20 minutes are good. That's fun. <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah. I'm just in love. <laughs> and then I see the dad and he's got a problem and I calm that down. <laughs> Um, and me and my wife would go off <laughs> to a hot place, um, and then it all goes belly up. Uh, and it's, a, it's at that point on, from Act 3, Scene 3, when Iago begins to, to spin the web of lies with Othello. From that point on, I, every actor's muscle that I have has to be absolutely in focus so that I don't miss anything that's vital and make sure it all comes through and um, in, into the audience's eyes for the, for the play. And do you feel every, after every performance that you've got to the summit and you come on for the, the curtain or have you only managed halfway up <laughs> and the crampons have gone flying into the uh, unknown <laughs> below you? <laughs> um, there have been a couple of performances that I'd like to do again. <laughs> Right, and it's just me, it's just my thing. You know, you think, oh, I didn't actually manage to hit that right, and so on. And the great thing about Shakespeare is I could, you know, I could do this for a year, I nearly am, but I could do it for a year um, every night and still every night be working on trying to make some passage, some aspect of the character, something he says, even clearer. I'd always be polishing and tweaking and refining certain moments just to make the language work better. 
And then there are some nights I go on and I think, oh, that worked. That's the best I've ever said, that line. And you try and repeat it the next night, and it goes, yeah. <laughs> Is it? Because I think I'm right in saying that Olivier, remember there's the famous story of him when he was playing, I think it was when he was playing Othello, that it was so brilliant that he, when he went backstage, every actor in the company, everybody at the Old Vic stood up and applauded him, but he was terribly depressed, and somebody asked him why, and he said, yes, but I don't know how I was that magnificent. <laughs> Is there something about that part that kind of, you know, forces you to think, you know, what, what this mysterious alchemy called acting, does Othello make it all the more bewildering? Um, it, it kind of does. I can't claim to having people clap backstage uh, <laughs> when, I, when I exit. In fact, if I say it loud enough, maybe some of them will hear <laughs> the actors. Actually, I thought it was in your contract. And Adrian, tonight, when me and Rory go off, they'll be there going, oh, you are welcome. <laughs> um, we, uh, I, 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 I don't know. There is something, it is the most depressing of tragedies. Mm. There, there is no hope within it. The fact that Iago doesn't speak at the end, he doesn't seem to get his comeuppance in front of the audience. All of that racial um, the, 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 the negativity and, 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 and so on that's fired at Othello, it doesn't get its comeuppance. You don't sit there going, well, ha, that'll teach him. Mm. You, you don't. You just get just. And she's, she's killed in the most brutal fashion without any sort of redeeming moment or a moment to speak for herself properly and, and answer the argument or nothing. It's just, it's brutal and, and hopeless in that there seems to be no hope. And there's something very chilling about Yaga's final few lines, which kind of reinforce the idea of his wickedness, although, of course, jealousy is at the root of it, but there is something arbitrary and random about why he should decide to bring such misery and death and ruin to these people. Mm just because he can, almost, yeah. in a way, which kind of adds to the good cheer backstage at the end of the performance. <laughs> anyway, let's move to a lighter note. Now, I mentioned anniversaries, and it is a, another strange coincidence that we should be here 10 years on from Henry V, because when you came, we came chatted over the teacups before, you'd just come from, I think, your very first day's work on Hustle. Yes. Now, you didn't know that was going to run for... Eight series, I think, of which you were in seven, I believe. Yeah, yeah. No so idea. tell us about that. Tell us about that whole hustle adventure. <laughs> <laughs> was it an adventure? It certainly looked as if you were having fun. It, it, it was an adventure. And in fact, um, the other actors are coming to see the show tonight. <laughs> so. <laughs> so uh, better be good. I better be good, yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn up the jealousometer <laughs> and um, really be jealous. Uh, it, it, I, I had no idea. Um, I, you know, went for this audition and the script, um, if anybody's seen it, I don't know, but it, the, the first episode, if you've seen it, I had read nothing like it on British television. I thought it was, it was funny, it was fun, it was clever, it was witty, and I thought, this is amazing, and I'm, I, I was so glad to, um, do the, do the, to get the job. Um, we didn't know it was going to run for so long at all. Um, it's always the way when doing that. I left drama school in 1989. Um, I had been working doing theatre and bits of film up until 2003, and then I did this major TV job. And as I was doing it, when the first series came out, people would look at me and say, but you're doing theatre. That's kind of difficult for a TV actor, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
And I would get the, I could hear the old school voice of Ira Aldridge in the back of my head going, do you know who I am? I've, I've been at the National. Um, I played Henry V, darn you. Uh, and people would, would say that. It's always the way. When I did Hamlet in 2001, um, and I was coming out of the um, theater, and somebody stopped me and said, thank you, and enjoyed it. And I said, oh, thank you very much. And I signed a program. And she said, do you do much theater in this country? <laughs> um, and I went, where are you from? She said, no, I live in London, and I go to the theater all the time. And I just wondered, do you do much theater in this country? <laughs> uh, you're always going to meet that. But um, it's, uh, hustle was great. Hustle was great. And I, I had been quite happily working um, a lot before doing that. And as soon as I did that, suddenly, um, People wanted more autographs, or people would shout out in the street, "Hey, Mickey!" <laughs> <laughs> um, which I love. Uh, it was uh, you. You enter a, a sort of a level of notoriety that was um, I, I found quite scary. Well, it was very seductive. It was Friday night escapism, beautifully photographed and lit. All this, so it was very glossy looking. Mm. You were all very beautiful people in sort of the height of fashion. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> and in a way, he was like a sort of Robin Hood. Yes, he, yes. He was a grifter, obviously, but he almost always ended up you know, uh, rewarding the deserving person and uh, bringing the villain uh, yeah. bang to rights. That's right. Unlike, it, unlike Robin Hood, that they sort of kept half the money. <laughs> but yes, because well, they all seemed to live together. I could never quite work out, because nobody ever cleaned <laughs> the toilet or paid the gas bill. <laughs> Or when, presumably it was waitress. Maybe you had it delivered on Orcado or something like that. <laughs> All those kind of domestic things are, did, did I miss anything or was it just part of the family? Oh, you, you don't want to see that. It's, <laughs> it's all sleight of hand and mm. clever dialogue and um, that kind of reality was, was uh, missing from the show on purpose. Yes. Uh, and the idea was we do what we do, and if you want to make it something else, then, then we should make that something else, or people can turn over. But Hustle was definitely, for the sleight of hand, the escapism. A lot of people watch the program trying to guess before it came up how they did it. <laughs> and a lot of people said to me, oh, they'd text me and say, oh, you got me on that one. I thought it was this, but it wasn't. Oh. And I kept thinking, it's just a show. Just relax. <laughs> But the, rela the relationships had to be true. You know, the characters had to yes, have yeah. truth. The situations had to... And that's what I thought that was so successful, and it kind of it was the fine line it pursued between, as you say, the glossy fantasy, but also the truth about people coming together, friendship, mm. and uh, all the rest of it. I mean, you directed... I, did it, was it more than one episode? I saw one episode you directed. Did you direct more than just, one? Just the one. Just, just the, the one, one. but... Uh, how was that? Did you enjoy that? Was that a new experience yeah, for you? Yeah, loved it. Loved it. I spent, in order, <laughs> in order to have me direct the episode, they had to kind of, Tony Jordan, brilliant writer, um, knew that Mickey couldn't have the same amount of screen time that he normally has because it would be impossible for me to direct and act it and so on. So they arranged for Mickey to be kidnapped and shoved into the, to a boot of a car. That's right. And, and the team spend all their time trying to get Mickey back. And it's a double cross and a triple cross with paintings and things. But I had to direct myself in the boot of a car, <laughs> which, was, which was really interesting. How did they manage to get the viewfinder? In the <laughs> <laughs> I, cu I couldn't get the viewfinder. I sort of sat, uh, would um, shout cart and come back and watch myself. I had my hands tied behind my back. 
And at one point, I thought, I wish there was an on-set crew watching this because I had my hands tied behind my back and I'd go, okay, cut. And I'd run like this over to the monitor and go, can you, can you play that back? That uh, press, press play, press play. And I'd press play and I'd watch it and I'd go, okay, that's good. Go from the other angle. We'll go and do it again. Come on, do it again. I had my hands. And um, they, they got me and they shoved me into the boot of this car and they slammed the lid. Um, and of course, on-set, the director shouts, cut. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought it was so funny, I tweeted it. Everybody who's tweeters out there, you know me. Hello. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, was, and I, so I, I was in the boot of this car, and I, and I waited. I thought someone's going to shout, cut. And they were still rolling. And the actors outside started improvising. And I was in, in this boot. And I went, my, tape over my mouth as well. <laughs> and they couldn't hear. And then there was laughing. I heard laughing. And I thought, oh, OK, they're going to leave me here for a while. <laughs> And just see how long it takes till I pass out. <laughs> and then someone said, I think he's shouting cut. <laughs> You're obviously a man of many parts. I mean, are you wanting to explore other areas of your talent now? Um, I, I want to direct more. Um, I want to experiment with writing and um, continue acting. And although uh, it seems like a lot, it's still in a very narrow vein of performance. It's just that you've got um, theatre and TV and, and film to explore all of those things in. Um, I think anybody in any, any job, if they, if they kind of prove their worth to management, if you like, they get promoted. You know, they'll get more responsibilities. Maybe the, the pay will change. They'll be asked to coordinate more and do more. And that continues through any other, um, any other career. Um, with acting, you kind of... There's a little bit of it where you have to sort of promote yourself. If you think you're ready to, to try something out, then actually it's on your head and you have to just go for it. And the only way you can promote yourself is by saying no to what you used to do before, by gently and respectfully saying, actually, I'm, I'm going to really try and do this now and hope it works. And if it works, then you can you continue. Um, and that's all I've kind of done, really. Well, could I respectfully suggest a, going back to the musical theatre, which you haven't been in since that a wonderful performance as Bobby and company at the Donma, which for me is a sort of slightly lukewarm Sondheim enthusiast, is praise indeed. So <laughs> well, is, are there you. any kind of musical theatre parts you've got your eye on? Um, not at the moment, no. No, <laughs> no. but I did, uh, um, Sondheim was honoured at the Olivier Awards, not last year, but the year before, and um, they rolled me out again, and I, <clears throat> I sang Being Alive, yes. um, and he was in the wings. Uh, <laughs> and I was just about to go on, and this bloke, I felt this bloke beside me, and I sort of thought, who is this guy? And I looked, and it was Stephen Sondheim, and I went, Stephen! <laughs> Trying to keep my voice down and manly. <laughs> Stephen, how are you? How's the flight? Hey, it's really good to see you. Um, I have super had to go on and sing. And so I said, oh, you don't have to stand here. You can, you can go over there and sit down and wait till, uh, till they're ready. And uh, he said, no, 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 it's great. I'm fine here, I'm fine here. And he was looking. And then they said, and Adrian Lester's going to sing Being Alive. And I came on and went, <gasps> and sang. And when I looked to the left, he was there. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, and I sang it. And then after that performance, and it, was, it, it went um, well, my agent, <laughs> I felt like she grabbed me by my ear. <laughs> she pulled me to one side and she said, we are not letting another year pass without you appearing on stage singing a song. <clears throat> Again, you have to do a musical. And I went, OK, OK, OK. She calmed down afterwards. Um, I, I have no plans to do that at the moment. Um, I do like singing, but uh, 
there's just, at the moment, there's no, no, plan. no plan. Well, on that note, sadly, I'm afraid I'll have to ring down the curtain on this <laughs> fabulous hour that we've just been having. I always think the fairies were very generous with you and your cradle, Adrian. They gave you looks, charm, talent, <laughs> charisma, and that's why you and I get on so well. We're two of a kind. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Adrian Lester. Thank you.